You're listening to Retail Disrupted, a podcast that explores the latest industry developments and the trends that will shape how we shop in the future. I'm your host, Natalie Berg. Happy New Year and welcome back. I hope you all had a nice and restful break. I managed to switch off from work completely, which isn't something I normally do, but it was really nice. It's nice to just have a little bit of a retail detox. But you know what it's like? You come back in January to a constant stream of Christmas trading updates on top of client work, on top of the podcast. So it's uh, it's been a it's been a very busy return and you know, it's a good thing. I love what I do. Right. <laughs> but it has been a busy week. I have worked with the BBC quite a bit this week. I worked with them on a story about how pop-up shops can help to revitalize our high streets, our homogenous high streets. The article was published on their site and the video version of the story is going to be released next week. So I will be sharing that when it's available if anyone is interested. I also had a very early start on the BBC this morning on the World Business Report to talk about Tesco and Marks and Spencer's Christmas trading results. That clip is available on my YouTube channel if anyone's interested in hearing more. I'm not going to be talking about it today. But next week's episode is going to be dedicated to a whole host of Christmas updates. So we'll be covering it then. Now, just a couple of quick announcements. I am so excited to share that I'm going to be joining Kate Hardcastle and Maya Knights. A lot of you know Maya. She's my co-author and she's been on the podcast a couple of times now. And I'm teaming up with them to host the Retail Technology Show this year. I know a lot of you know this event. It's a fantastic event. I went for the very first time last year, and I'm really looking forward to working with Matt Bradley, Carl Goodman, and the rest of the team. It's on April 24th and April 25th, and it's taking place at the Olympia in London. So hopefully, I'll see some of you there. I'm also going to be speaking at Spring Fair in Birmingham in March. So again, if anyone's going to be there and wants to grab a coffee or catch up, please do drop me a line. I have a couple of very exciting interviews booked for um, the podcast while I'm there. So again, watch this space. Now for today's episode, I'm very excited to welcome Paul Martin on the podcast. Paul is the global retail lead and the UK head of retail at KPMG. I've known Paul for 16 years now. We used to work together at what was Planet Retail, the market research and analysis firm. I have very fond memories of my time there, and I've been really fortunate to have made some lifelong friends from my time working there. So, you know, it was a a great experience for me. I spent over a decade working for Planet Retail, and a large chunk of that time was actually with Paul. Now, more recently, I have had the pleasure of reacquainting with Paul professionally as part of the KPMG Retail Next Retail Think Tank. Paul co-chairs the think tank, so we're going to talk a little bit about that and then get Paul's thoughts on how retail is evolving. Paul is genuinely a fount of knowledge on all things retail, and I'm sure you're going to get a lot of value from this conversation. Let's get started. (music) 
Paul, welcome to the podcast and thank you for being my very first guest of 2024. Happy New Year, Natalie, and thank you very much for having me. My pleasure. Now, Paul, you and I go way back and I know we have a lot of mutual connections, but perhaps you could just kick us off with a few words about yourself and your role at KPMG. Brilliant. Well, look, um, as you say, uh, we have uh, uh, we have had the privilege of uh, working together, uh, albeit uh, probably a couple of years back now. Today, I uh, own uh, or I wear two hats at KPMG. I'm the global head of retail and the UK head of retail. Uh, I think uh, the firm decided that just having one job wouldn't keep me busy enough. Uh, <laughs> therefore, uh, I try to do uh, both at the same time. Uh, prior to that, uh, I uh, co the retail sector at a boutique consulting firm uh, called Boxwood, which we subsequently sold uh, to KPMG. And then um, before that, uh, of course, you and I worked together at Planet Retail, uh, <clears throat> then one of the world's leading retail analyst uh, businesses. Uh, I uh, was the MD for that business and uh, you uh, were one of uh, the exceptionally trusted research directors, which uh, of course, was a, a great time, albeit uh, sort of 10 years plus back uh, now. And then prior to that, I held various other roles, including working in the retail sector for a number of years. Well, that's great. And it's it's really great to have you here, Paul. I'm looking forward to our conversation. And perhaps could you share a few words about your role as co-chair of the KPMG Retail Next think, uh, Retail Think Tank? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the KPMG Retail Next uh, think tank was actually founded back in 2006. So uh, we are coming up to uh, close of uh, close to 20 years of uh, this uh, this body being in existence. I inherited uh, the think tank uh, from my predecessor, David David McCorkadale, sort of back in uh, 2018. And the idea when it was set up uh, originally by uh, Helen Dickinson, who, uh, of course, has now come to fame as the CEO uh, of the BRC and uh, Tim Dennison uh, of uh, Ipsos, was to create a, a collection of independent experts that have all spent decades of their career uh, analysing and assessing the retail industry to bring that group of experts together on a quarterly basis to really do two things, to A, assess the health of the UK retail sector, which uh, leads to the quarterly publication of the Retail Health Index, and then B, to create a white paper on what are some of the key themes that the industry is currently facing, and unsurprisingly, topics such as inflation, topics such as the growth of e-commerce have all featured over uh, recent years. And it's a, it's a really great collection of brilliant minds from various different disciplines within the retail sector, be it the capital markets, be it technology, be it e-commerce, be it financial services, be it property. Uh, they all bring their expertise to the table uh, and uh, there is always a really vibrant debate about what we think retail leaders uh, should be focusing on today, but more importantly also tomorrow. And of course, since last year, uh, you have joined this uh, esteemed circle of experts, which is a, a really great privilege to also have you on board now. 
No, likewise, Paul. I've really enjoyed it. I've found it really valuable and really fascinating just sitting in on those meetings and hearing from everyone. And uh, as you say, it's such a diverse group of experts. So I, I personally get a ton out of it. Um, and more recently, I've really enjoyed having some of the other members of the Retail Think Tank on the podcast. So I've had Maya Knights come on to talk about AI. I've had Jonathan DeMello on talking about how retailers are charging for returns. Maureen Hinton came on to talk about fashion retail. And in a couple of weeks, I have Nick Bubb coming on to talk about Christmas trading results. So it's, uh, yeah, it's been really great to kind of get their collective thoughts on, on retail. On the topic of Christmas trading, I'm going to use this as my peg, as my, uh, my segue here, Paul. I'd love to get your views on Christmas trading and retail performance more generally. And of course, this is very timely because we're recording this on Tuesday, the 9th of January, and the BRC KPMG retail sales monitor has just been released a few hours ago. Now, just a, a very brief recap for our listeners. For 2023 overall, total UK retail sales increased by 3.6%. Food sales were up around 8%, and non-food sales were down slightly at negative 0.1% uh, for the year. Now, when we just look at the month of December, UK total retail sales increased by 1.7% year on year, which Helen Dickinson earlier referred to as a lackluster end to 2023. So, Paul, I'd love to get your views. What does this tell us about the state of retail right now? You've highlighted the headline figures there, Natalie. And look, um, the, 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 sadly, the sort of fears we had about Christmas trading uh, have sadly sort of come to fruition. Uh, in the run up to Christmas, we saw a pretty weak start to the golden quarter. October wasn't great. Then November, which of course incorporates Black Friday, normally sees quite a sizable uh, increase. That didn't happen. And then you had some commentators highlighting there may be that late rush uh, uh, to really, uh, 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 to really uh, sort of bring uh, or make uh, the sort of pills ring at the last moment, uh, and of course, some retailers, of course, were hoping for that all the way uh, up to the end of the uh, uh, of the golden tr quarter trading period, but that didn't happen overall, and it does reflect the current macroeconomic situation the UK is in. Uh, consumers have uh, really battened down the hatches. There is a degree of nervousness uh, around sort of spending on uh, sort of bigger ticket items at this point in time. So overall, Christmas was pretty muted, but I do have to put a big but uh, sort of into the equation here because of increasingly the UK retail sector is polarizing into winners and losers. And we've seen in the last couple of months now a very significant shift towards the grocery categories and the health and beauty categories. And a retail leader was saying to me just the other day, uh, during the sort of Christmas trading period, if as a consumer you had the option to buy a lipstick versus a new dress to go to the Christmas party, you probably opted for the slightly cheaper version of the lipstick uh, this year. Therefore, some categories are absolutely winning uh, and are performing well. Other categories have found it much, much more challenging. But what we're also seeing, and this, this uh, to a degree is a parallel to COVID, but also uh, a, a big, big difference, 
during the COVID uh, period, we had winning and losing categories often characterized uh, as essential and non-essential categories. And if you were in one of those essential categories, irrelevant of how good an operator you were, you generally produced some pretty decent top line figures, um, which uh, is not the case anymore. You still have winning and losing categories, but even within winning categories, you have winning and losing operators. So today you have to be a good retailer, irrelevant if your category is performing to really drive those good headline figures. And then just my sort of final comment on the numbers you uh, stated, if I go back to 2019, 1.7% growth would, of course, been a very, very good number. And uh, we often forget pre-COVID, uh, UK retail sector was actually in decline. But of course, we are now in a rampant inflationary environment. Yes, inflation is coming down. But if you have the overall inflationary level at 4%, 1.7% uh, growth is nothing to write home about. Mm, that's a really good point. And I just want to pick up on your point around the winners and losers and this general bifurcation that we're seeing in retail right now, because you've already called out that we've seen some really robust trading from the usual suspects, the supermarkets, for example. And um, Kantar said that it was the busiest Christmas since pre-COVID, that supermarkets recorded their highest level of transactions since 2019. Uh, we also, within that space, we've seen the value retailers, the Aldi's and Littles do really well. And then in the non-food value space, B&M recently recorded, uh, reported um, very strong trading results. Next, which continues to be a bellwether, you know, continues to shine. They've had a very strong Christmas. And I want to come back to Next in a little bit. So I just want to acknowledge them here as one of the winners. Wine retailer Majestic said they had their best ever Christmas. Pandora, the jewelry retailer, said that globally, like-for-likes likes, were up 9% in Q4. Um, some retailers that haven't reported but are expected to do really well are Marks & Spencer and even Boots. So again, to your point around health and beauty kind of bucking the trend, I think it's really interesting just to call out some of the retailers that are um, performing strongly despite the, the challenging backdrop. But then you have retailers like Topps Tiles, whose like-for-likes were down 7% for the quarter, and they cited ongoing challenges to discretionary consumer spending. And you also have JD Sports, which issued a surprise profit warning, citing the mild weather, subdued consumer, and heavy discounting as well. So it's always going to be, there's always going to be winners and losers, but what do you make of these mixed fortunes during such a critical trading period for retailers? Look, I mean, the, the retail industry for years has uh, used uh, a whole host of uh, reasons to justify uh, good and bad performance. And uh, we have uh, regularly sort of heard the weather being used as uh, one of the uh, one of the key drivers uh, of performance. And uh, look, to, to retailers' defence, and, and I think one thing we need to be sort of really clear about 
uh, and uh, at the think tank we we wrote a paper about this a couple of months ago i mean retail has gone through multiple waves of very significant disruption over the last two decades if you start off with the channel shift that we've sort of seen away from purely bricks and mortar uh, to a multi omni seamless whatever word uh, you want to choose um, just don't say today, fidgetal Paul. please don't, don't say, say fidgetal, fidgetal. okay <laughs> I, I promise not to use uh, that acronym uh, i think that's uh, one i used sort of 10 years ago uh, i didn't even realize that that was still in fashion um but but you obviously had that wave uh, which is obviously still uh, well and truly alive as channel shift uh, sort of continues to happen and retailers really need to think seamless commerce uh, as a way forward. Then, of course, you uh, had uh, a global pandemic. Then we move into a cost of living crisis connected with possibly the worst spike in inflation most of us would have seen during their lifetime. And very large portions of the UK retail industry, which is, of course, a 400 plus billion uh, sector for the UK, the largest private sector employer, produces over 12% or contributes over 12% to UK GDP, very significant parts of that industry have performed pretty well albeit they've had to deal with some pretty adverse uh, sort of economic, uh, societal uh, uh, and uh, technological shifts that have happened uh, uh, around them. And look, we, we host on a monthly basis a CEO, a virtual CEO get together where we have between 30 and 50 CEOs from the sector sort of sharing uh, with, uh, uh, with the group uh, uh, sort of the key themes on their mind at the moment and I go back to uh, our call in early October and I'm normally pretty pretty unsympathetic about the weather as an excuse but one retail CFO sort of mentioned that on the 7th of October uh, where we had 26 degrees in uh, the UK uh, they had their record day of beachwear sales when they should normally have been selling hats gloves and scarves so that makes it a pretty pretty difficult sort of match context uh, to operate, uh, which of course is something the retailers uh, have not really found a way of how to influence uh, the weather yet. So uh, a lot of those macro conditions have been beyond the control of the industry. And I think a large proportion of the operators we have uh, today, and yes, we've had a, 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 sadly over the last decade quite a few household names disappear, but most of today's operators have done a lot of work to really fix their business and their operating models uh, to be fit for purpose. Um, but it is a low margin sector and there will be many, many more challenges to come in the weeks, months and years uh, to, uh, uh, to come. And no doubt we'll touch on a couple of those in a moment. Yeah. And on the topic of margins, Paul, perhaps this is um, a good time to talk about promotions because you were quoted in the BRC KPMG release from earlier today saying that the promotions lasted longer and were deeper than last year and that higher promotional activity in the supermarket space saw grocery price inflation fall at its fastest rate on record in December. 
Now, in non-food in particular, we know there's always this game of chicken in the final months of the year where you have Black Friday or Black November, as I think we should really be referring to it as. Um, and then you have all these discounts and then people kind of um, don't want to go back to paying full price. So they hold out until the final the final days. And I don't really want to dwell on kind of what happened with Black Friday and the, the, the days running up to Christmas because I think we've covered that. But what I'm really curious about is whether you feel that retailers have moved into 2024 sitting on a lot of stock and if so what the implications of that might be it's it's not an easy question to answer and uh, i do think i mean one of the structural challenges we still have in the uk uh, is this sort of drug of sort of markdown and promotions, uh, which a lot of organisations find very, very difficult to sort of jump off uh, that uh, that bandwagon. And yes, as you sort of stated correctly, uh, I mentioned in my commentary that promotional activity, both in food and non-food, was exceptionally high uh, in the run-up to Christmas. And sadly, the, the numbers you quoted earlier showed that overall sales were below what many retailers were expecting and at the retail think tank uh, we measure uh, the, the the health index through three key metrics demand margin uh, and of course cost and when you are seeing a reduction in demand the automatic countermeasure is of course to sacrifice margin to drive more demand through your stores and uh, there is a big question question at the moment and again uh, a debate had at the CEO sort of virtual get together yesterday uh, some retailers are running the strategy of sales uh, others are running the strategy of margin at the moment and of course if you're directly competing with a retailer that is on the adverse metric uh, that can be quite challenging and retailers that have done well and have been operationally have set themselves up well to understand the demand forecast that have bought the right amount of stock both from a seasonal but also uh, from a sort of uh, a, a longer non-seasonal perspective um, they have had to clear less and if you look at some of the names you mentioned earlier that have really been focusing on full price sales and we are seeing a pivot in the industry of a whole host of names that have been doing it forever but then we've got a whole host of new names that are really working on uh, driving full price sales those businesses generally have performed better but you can only drive full price sales if you truly have a good view of your stock position and you understand your sell-through ratio and if you don't understand your sell-through ratios and you also don't lose your nerve if you've got too much stock or if you've got too little stock and you're selling out, uh, then uh, you're in a quite good position to be. But that comes back down to sort of the fundamental of markdown uh, and promo being a drug in the UK because mm. of many retailers today are still challenged of connecting demand with some of their operational KPIs as in uh, stock levels. And it's really hard to wean shoppers off of this addiction as well, isn't it? I mean, I know some high street retailers, I mean, I think M&S is a great example. They, you know, they really didn't 
do very much for Black Friday this year. And, and that's, you know, that's a retailer who in the past would have been right out there with the 20% off blanket deals. And I think it's just been really interesting as an analyst to see how um, I think everybody know, knew that the direction that they needed to go in, in terms of retraining the customer mindset and really holding holding on and sticking to their guns. But um, it's it's been interesting to see how promotions, I feel, have become a lot more strategic, a lot more targeted, and also a lot more personalized through technology and how that's um, helping retailers to uh, take less of a scattergun approach to, to discounting. Now, on the topic of uh, retailers that stick to full prices, I'd like to just come back to Next. Now, as I said, they're very much a bellwether and their trading updates are always filled with tons of interesting nuggets and insights. Um, and in the most recent one, they said that the consumer environment looks more benign than it has for a number of years. And I thought that was an interesting choice of word. They specifically specifically called out the fact that wages are rising faster than inflation, which will ease the pressure on consumers. Uh, they called out that cost price inflation in their own products is diminishing. They're expecting zero inflation in selling prices, which will be the first time in three years that input prices have been stable. So I, th I thought that was pretty interesting. But they also called out some significant uncertainties. And I don't think any of these are exclusive to next. So I'd love to get your thoughts on these. They called out the weakening employment market, acknowledging that rising wages are good for sales, but it's likely to result in reduced employment opportunities in the wider economy. They called out the fact that fixed mortgage deals coming to an end will require refinancing at a higher rate. And I can personally relate to that. Our mortgage is going to go up pretty considerably in April. So, um, so yeah, I can relate. And then lastly, they called out supply chain risks and specifically mentioned the recent attacks on container ships in the Red Sea. They said that difficulties with access to the Suez Canal is likely to cause delays to stock deliveries in the immediate future. And they said it could take an extra two to two and a half weeks for stock to reach the UK. And that if that carried on for a long period of time, it could impact on sales. And Ikea is another retailer that's also called this out, that they're likely to experience delays because of what's happening. Now, there's never a dull moment in retail, Paul, <laughs> as you know. But what do you make of Next assessment of both the retail and consumer environment? Does this align with what you're seeing in the market? Well, look, if I, if I look at our predictions for 2024, and then I also take uh, the retail think tanks 2024 outlook uh, that we published a couple of weeks ago, a lot of the points you just referenced uh, absolutely uh, match uh, uh, with, with some of our thinking. I think uh, and, and look, sadly, 2024, especially H1, is going to be very similar to 2023. It is going to be a year of stagnation. We, of course, continue to have political and economic uncertainty in the UK, which, of course, do not help the overall consumer environment. Uh, we are, uh, of course, at that period of the year uh, when uh, consumers have got their heatings on. Uh, yes, utility costs have gone down quite significantly from their peak uh, uh, sort of 12 to 18 months ago, but uh, they are still significantly higher than a couple of years ago. Uh, you mentioned uh, the uh, remortgage or the mortgage market. And yes, even though it will only be 
approximately 1.5 million uh, mortgage holders that uh, will be remortgaging sort of over the next sort of uh, uh, sort of six to 12 months. That is still a considerable amount in comparison to those that have already had to remortgage in the last sort of six months. Uh, so uh, the, the the pain of the interest uh, rate rises is only just uh, starting to be felt by a proportion uh, of UK consumers. We know that rents uh, have gone up um, uh, for uh, many renters due to the knock-on effect of the uh, the mortgage environment. Uh, so again, that is hurting the disposable wallet uh, of many consumers. And then look, inflation and specifically CPI inflation is a headline number. If you look at food price inflation and you actually look at a two-year CAGR, it is a much, much more significant rise. And we speaking of 4% inflation today, which of course is double uh, the target of the Bank of England, but significantly lower than the double digit figures we had a year ago. But when you look at the price increases of some of the staples, take pasta, take rice, we are speaking sort of 20 to 25% uh, uh, price increases on a two-year compound annual growth rate. So that means consumers have less money to spend today, which uh, of course is leading to uh, weakened consumer demand and therefore uh, consumers are polarizing in their spend. They are obviously focusing on grocery and some of those affordable luxuries like health and beauty, as we mentioned uh, before. And then you connect that with rising business costs. And look, some of the obvious ones are very well uh, publicized uh, for all the right reasons. Uh, national living wage is continuing to go up, which of course is very beneficial for those those lower paid workers uh, but at the same time there is a impact on uh, the retailers that are paying uh, those wages uh, and as we know retail is uh, a very significant employer uh, of uh, those lower paid uh, income demographics so there will be uh, a, a, a cost impact of quite sizable proportion uh, to the retail industry uh, then of course uh, you uh, have the uh, next round of business rate uh, increases that will hit retailers uh, in a couple of months from now. Um, and then you've got a whole host uh, of sort of other topics. We spoke about sort of the uh, stock problem. And if you were bad at demand forecasting, you weren't able to clear through uh, the stock um, uh, uh, over the Christmas trading period. Very unlikely anybody wants to buy a Father Christmas sweater in February. Uh, and even if you're able to put that in the warehouse, that means it is a product that you've not converted into cash uh, and you're going to have to pay for it to actually uh, uh, sit somewhere in the back of a shed somewhere. So those are all of the obvious costs. And then you've referenced uh, sort of the increased sort of volatility from a geopolitical perspective. And of course, the Red Sea. Uh, situation and uh, I am not uh, the sort of geopolitical expert to comment on the outcome here um, but we have seen tensions increase quite significantly over recent weeks and uh, just speaking to a, a, a whole host of retailers yesterday uh, spot prices for freight specifically from the Far East uh, that 
uh, were down uh, quite considerably in the last sort of 12 months have started to increase. So the actual base price is still pretty low, but there is a Red Sea surcharge, there is a whole host of other surcharges, and we're suddenly back to sort of $5,000 uh, for a sea freight container coming from the Far East, which of course is higher than the sort of two, two and a half thousand we saw a couple of weeks ago significantly lower than the 20,000 we saw during COVID. Um, but if that situation continues to accelerate in a negative way, um, then that could have real ramifications. And one one um, very senior retailer said to me, if you go back, Paul, and you think of uh, the Suez Canal blockage uh, uh, a couple of years ago, that ship was stuck for eight days. It took eight months to clear the backlog. Um, Think of the ramifications wow. uh, of a extended crisis that uh, could be the case in the Red Sea uh, would have uh, for supply chain. And then we, 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 we've obviously spoken a lot about the importance of supply chain to businesses. And yes, the Red Sea condition is a, a significant situation. But what we're not speaking much about at the moment is that technically the physical inspections uh, of products coming in and out of the UK due to the Brexit legislation are also coming into force later on this year, which could have a, another knock-on effect to both availability, but more importantly, also to uh, cost of goods. Mm, so more uncertainty, potentially more volatility. And uh, uh, yeah, so I suppose a, a lot of doom and gloom, but also there on the flip side, there are a lot of really fantastic things happening in retail right now. So maybe if we move on to talk about some of the opportunities, despite the challenging backdrop, um, because there's so much happening, everything from AI and technology to store innovation, to enhancing the customer experience. What are you hearing from retailers, Paul, in terms of what they're most excited about this year? And is there any low-hanging fruit, or do you think retailers need to be playing the long game when it comes to technology and innovation? I think there's always a. I think there's always a bit of both. Um, and look, I, I mentioned earlier that I, for and foremost, have to pay credit to the retail sector uh, because of they've done a lot of work over the last couple of years, and it has been a degree of social Darwinism, the survival of the fittest. So those that uh, are operating today are generally pretty strong businesses. In most cases, they've fixed their balance sheets. They've really focused focused on uh, their business and their operating models. Sadly, the world of retail is a little bit like painting the Golden Gate Bridge. It takes two and a half years to paint it. And the day you finish at one end, you go to the front again and start all over again. So it is constant evolution and there are constant challenges uh, you need to face into. But I do think the, the sector is pretty well equipped to deal with them. Of course, as we alluded to earlier, there will be uh, or there will continue to be winners and losers. And wherever there are challenges to the point you made earlier, there are real opportunities. The whole 
cost and efficiency agenda will remain a really significant focus for the retail industry. And I remember very publicly sort of two years ago saying coming out of COVID and all of the challenges that will come, if you are a food or a grocery retailer, you need to have a plan to take sort of between 5 and 15% of your costs out of your business. If you're a non-food retailer due to the performance of that sector, you need to have a plan to have between 15 and 30% of costs out of your business. So lots of retailers are looking at doing that as we speak. One key area is around range and uh, assortment planning uh, to be much, much smarter of what you have uh, in which channel, how you sell it. Another key topic, and we referenced this earlier, is price and promotion analysis. The days where you just try and promote everything uh, to clear stock, I would arguably argue uh, is not the smartest way. In a recent uh, sort of piece of work we conducted in this space, uh, we asked a retailer just to stop 50% of their promotions to actually see, without any sort of detailed analytics behind it, just to see what the impact uh, would be. And um, it actually didn't have a detrimental uh, impact on sales through. So I predict a really significant rethink of price and promotion strategies sort of in the near future. And of course, a lot of this is going to be underpinned by the advances in technology and specifically in the AI space. We, we, we talk about AI if, if it is this sort of nebulous unicorn that has suddenly appeared over the horizon. It's been around since the 1940s. The big change, of course, is that computing power is significantly faster. It can deal with much higher degrees of uh, data than it ever could. And it's much, much cheaper to deploy uh, in the past. And therefore, taking all of your different data assets, unifying them across different channels, uh, and really being able to get a single view of customer, a single view of stock, and then overlaying demand forecasts, pricing forecasts, etc., is where I think the real user cases of, of AI will come to the forefront. And <clears throat> Specifically for retail, this is where uh, AI uh, will need to uh, really drive two key questions. Will it help me sell more or will it help me reduce my costs? Those are the two key exam questions that retailers are asking themselves. If it doesn't, they'll be less interested in that. But I think there's a great opportunity in that space. And that then, of course, leads me to the next point, which is... I increasingly think the future of retail is all around, dare I again call it, omnichannel seamless commerce. But we, we have seen sort of over the last couple of years, single channel retailers find it really, really difficult to thrive uh, in this environment. Yes, during COVID, if you were an online pure player, for obvious reasons, you had a real significant benefit. Uh, so a lot of the traditional bricks and mortar retailers ramped up their online capabilities significantly. But we've also seen, and uh, this was an interesting fact in the BRC data, is that overall 23 versus 22, non-food sales declined by 0.4%. 
but in-store sales of non-food actually grew 1.1%. So the store isn't dead, but what we're really seeing is that blend of omni-channel ways forward and technology and data, of course, underpin uh, that seamless commerce business model. So if you wanted to call multi-channel generation one uh, of digital transformation, omni-channel generation two of digital transformation, I predict that generation three seamless commerce transformation is going to happen uh, sort of over the next uh, the next sort of months and years in vengeance. I'm just writing a, a, a detailed piece of analysis on that, but that of course would be a topic for a, a, a completely different podcast. But there's a real opportunity there. And then just to sort of wrap up some of the opportunities, I mean, we've spoken at length about winning and losing categories. And I think there is a real opportunity in the grocery space and in the health and beauty space. But especially if you're capturing some of those customer missions that may have been dining out. And again, we've seen some of the some of the grocers uh, very successfully build on their sort of stay in on a Friday night type proposition that are taking away uh, sales that historically may have gone into the dine-out or into the takeaway uh, channel. So we will see, I think, more and more focus uh, of the grocers and those uh, health and beauty operators into really driving those winning categories. I think there is a real opportunity around the business models such as uh, retail media and how do you monetize retail media. The days of where selling sort of customer data uh, are increasingly over. So the next new revenue stream is retail media. Again, maybe more hype than reality around it, but those that are doing it well uh, are definitely generating another revenue stream. I think connected to that, and we are seeing some great examples from UK retail, um, is if you're just selling physical products and physical spaces, that may not be enough. How can you monetize your supply chain, your IT, your marketing assets? How can you monetize your customers and sell potentially partners, even competitors' products to uh, these uh, customers. So creating additional revenue streams is going to be a really key. And then, yes, the M&A markets have been pretty quiet for the last 12 months, but whenever there are sort of winners and losers, there's always an opportunity. And we have seen examples last year of the winners starting to pick up some of those players that have been less strong and creating the this one engine, multiple business model type approach. Paul, you have given us so much food for thought. Thank you so much for coming on and sharing your views. It's been really brilliant to have you on the show. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you for listening to Retail Disrupted. If you enjoyed this episode and would like to support the podcast, please leave a rating or review or share it with others. It really makes a difference. 